0: Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's this week's message. Us preachers are always looking for ways to illustrate biblical truth, but sometimes the strangest ideas come to mind when meditating on a biblical passage in preparation to preach, and case in point with today, when I read the first part of our scripture focus for this morning, the first thing I thought of, you will not believe this, was Taylor Swift. She is today what Elvis and the Beatles and the Backstreet Boys were to earlier generations and people will pay the most ungodly sums of money to go and get a nosebleed seat at one of her concerts. She was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year for 2023. Now is she talented? Yes, absolutely. Is she a master of marketing? I think she is or at least her handlers are one or the other. Humanity has always had a thing for celebrity of any sort. Everybody from Moses to Julius Caesar to Charles Manson has had a cult following of some sort. Even Jesus had people who followed him not because he was their Lord and master, but because he was something of a celebrity. Why is that? Well, I suppose there may be many reasons, but among them may be that focusing on a celebrity allows people to think beyond themselves and their own cares and concerns, at least for a little while. Let me show you why I thought of Taylor Swift and all her Swifties as I read the first part, uh, and and certainly now as I read the first part of our Scripture Focus. This is Acts chapter 5. This is verses 12 to 16. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade. But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. Yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women, As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. Now in context, remember that this follows hard on the heels of the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the apostles about the nature of their gift in support of the early church and they dropped dead as a result. Luke says in verse, chapter 5 verse 11 that great fear gripped the entire church and everyone who heard what had happened. But that did not stop the apostles from continuing their ministry of evangelism. Luke says that the believers met in Solomon's colonnade, the area in the temple courts where people would go to hear teachers, often itinerant preachers. Luke says that the early Christians were highly regarded, but people kept their distance, probably because they'd heard of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and they didn't want to drop dead. Yet people were coming to faith in great numbers. But here's what I was thinking of, when it came to Taylor Swift. Look again at verse 15. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. With a hope for healing, a better life, people were brought out by whatever manner possible so that Peter's shadow might just cross their path. This is right up there with, you know, shaking a celebrity's hand and s- vowing that you're never going to wash that hand again. I, I hope you do wash that hand, because otherwise that's just gross. People will pay exorbitant sums just to be in the same stadium as Taylor Swift, the cultural icon. But maybe you thought of another story about, as that passage was read. Maybe you thought about the woman who came up and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and he felt power go out of him and that woman who had been suffering from, for, for, with constant bleeding for 12 years was immediately healed. Luke told that story in his gospel and it in fact appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the gospel of Mark, In chapter 6, verse 56, he mentions that many people were healed just by touching the hem of Jesus' robe. Jesus had told the apostles at his ascension that they would receive power, and that power certainly rested on the apostles if Peter's shadow was enough to heal someone. In the apostles, as in Jesus, people saw hope and healing, something that would better their lives, all, I suspect, a little better than going to a Taylor Swift concert, if you ask me. But you might be given to wondering why this doesn't happen to the likes of you or me. Why not? I mean, heaven knows I cast a uh, fair-sized shadow, Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, I haven't had anybody walk through my shadow, experience any kind of healing. Maybe you have, but my guess is you probably haven't. What if we took the shadow as a metaphor? What if the shadow could be framed simply as coming into contact with people? Folks we pass on the street, friends with whom we have lunch, coworkers with whom we rub shoulders, family members with whom we deal on a daily basis. What if our lives reflected Jesus to the extent that our interactions with them brought some sort of healing to their lives? I don't suggest this to negate the possibility of real physical healing from disease or deliverance from evil spirits. I believe some are gifted to bring that about, and indeed, probably more people are gifted to bring it about than even know it. What I'm saying is that if we truly live the Christian life authentically with all the people we meet, we can make them feel better about themselves, perhaps, Feel better about the world, perhaps, but feel better about Jesus, too. Living authentically in Christ is one way that we can witness to the gospel of Jesus and gain a hearing to be able to share our faith with them, at least in some cases. Again, this isn't just about being nice, right? Anybody can be nice. I'll bet you Jeffrey Dahmer was nice from time to time. This is about being intentionally gospel-centered. This is about living our lives as billboards for salvation in the name of Jesus. That differs from being nice in the sense that that living for Jesus uh, comes with risks. Even if the apostles had healed no one, their powerful lives of faith would have run them afoul of the authorities." who had already told them once to quit talking about their crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. And it happened again. The apostles were acting in the authority of Jesus, and it didn't take long to get back to the Jewish leaders. Let's read the rest of Acts chapter 5. This is verse 17. The high priest and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy they arrested the apostles, not just Peter and John, but the apostles, and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So the apostles were in jail, and an angel of the Lord set them free, one of God's agents, one of God's messengers, freed them from prison undetected. And he did so with a fresh commission. Go to the temple and give these people this message of life. How could they not? With something so amazing having just happened, this would have given them renewed energy to preach to anybody who would hear that Jesus came to set them free, possibly from prison, but certainly from sin. Verse 21. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told. And immediately began teaching. Now, they wouldn't have just been showing off their get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Surely they would have illustrated with that story. But what they were doing was teaching and proclaiming solid truth to all who were eager to listen. When the high priests and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, that's what they called the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, The jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. This was a conundrum for the temple guard, right? Because the gospel was so popular, and these guys were reasonably unpopular, that if they had invoked violence to arrest these men... Uh, the crowds would have just stoned them to death. Then they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. He said, you notice they, they couldn't even say his name. They couldn't even say Jesus' name. That's true of some Jewish folks today too. They can't say the name of Jesus. It's a powerful name. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. Boy, truth hurts, eh, fellas? They feared a popular uprising and they were demonstrating their own powerlessness. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. They, they don't try to defend themselves beyond this. They simply witness. Witness. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. The word that's actually used there is the word tree. And it's a reference back to Deuteronomy 21 in which it says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Peter also references that in his first letter. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. So the apostles witness, and they offer an invitation for people, even these Jewish rulers, to repent of their sins and to receive God's forgiveness. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Now, The Sanhedrin was primarily made up of Sadducees. We've explained before why they were Sadducee, but there were were Pharisees there too who were more conciliar. Verse 34 says, But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Now, Gamaliel was the greatest teacher of his time, and and maybe the poster boy for Pharisaism. It's worth noting that one of his star pupils was a guy named Saul of Tarsus, uh, about whom we will read a lot in the book of Acts in the ensuing chapters. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you are planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was that fellow Thudas who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all his followers went their various ways. This whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. So basically, Gamaliel is citing examples Uh, of movements that amounted to nothing, just to remind these radicals to cool their jets a little. Gamaliel continues, So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. And Christians for two millennia have been thanking him ever since. Uh, They called in the apostles and had them flogged. That's a humiliating experience. Then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. But did the apostles listen? No. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if the early church embodied anything besides the power of the Holy Spirit in their testimony, it was a commitment to civil disobedience. In many respects, this is nothing new. Derek read from Daniel chapter 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the same thing later happened to Daniel. They were told while they were in exile to refrain from worshiping their own god, instead being told to worship these other gods of the foreign land into which they'd been exiled. And they all said no, and the powers that be were prepared to follow through on their threats. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sent into a fiery furnace, and God rescued them without so much as a singe on their clothing. Daniel was sent to the lion's den, and he came out unharmed. They were faithful to God, and God was faithful to them. Now, this should come as no surprise, because you may recall that the Lord is a covenant-keeping God. Back in the time of Abraham, the Lord said he would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea, and he would be their God, and they would be his people. God never ceased to be faithful. It was the people who more often were not keeping their promises to be faithful. But here in Acts chapter 5, as in those stories in Daniel, God's truly faithful people maintained their steadfastness remaining faithful exacts a cost. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into that furnace willing to pay the price of their lives to be faithful to the Lord. Daniel went into the lion's den willing to pay the price of his life to be faithful to the Lord. The apostles were imprisoned, knowing it could cost them their lives, but they were willing to pay the price to be faithful to the Lord. And the question for us is no different. Are we willing to pay the price to be faithful to the Lord? Let's be clear, though. In our country, indeed in the Western Hemisphere, there is not, nor has there been to this point, any sign of real persecution among Christians like there has been in other parts of the world. But let's also be clear that the signs point to the fact that persecution is around the corner. And as we've discussed before, the least talked promise in the Bible is that if we truly live by faith, we will suffer persecution of some sort. So that time may come. Are we willing to pay the price to be faithful to the Lord. There's issues for which the Lord's faithful people may engage in civil disobedience, though. In the 1950s and 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. led an entire movement of civil disobedience in order to obtain equal rights for people of color, something the Bible takes as a given, but that American society, and particularly in the South, did not. Dr. King could be seen as any Christian's model for civil disobedience. Because when he broke civil law, he did it because he believed God's law was superior, and he knew the consequences, and he didn't hesitate to give in. He didn't resist arrest. He spent time in prison. Ultimately, he was assassinated, all because he believed in the cause of civil rights for all people. But what if Dr. King had not been a Christian? Would he have had the same demeanor about his protest Had he not been inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, I suppose we will never know. But there are others who followed after him who did not follow Jesus, and some of the results of their efforts were not as peaceful or as effective as those of Dr. King. I read about one author, and he stated that civil disobedience is acceptable for Christians under two circumstances— First, when believers are required to deny their faith in Christ or explicitly disown Jesus, or when the state requires Christians to take part in an action which is in clear conflict with their Christianly informed consciences, so when the government tells you you can't be a follower of Jesus under the law, or you're required in some act that you're to, to engage in some act that your faith disallows. Civil disobedience is appropriate and called for. Let's say, for example, you're a physician and you're ordered to perform assisted suicide, what the politically correct now call medical assistance in dying. Your civil disobedience would be to say no, at least to start. If that meant the loss of your license with the College of Physicians, so be it. If that meant jail time, which would be a waste of everyone's time and money, so be it. Or let's say you're just ordinary worshiper of Jesus. If the government came along and burned down every church building and and told all the congregations they were not permitted to gather and praise, building be damned, it would be right for you to gather with a group of followers of Jesus outside or in another building wherever you could find it. If the government told you that you had to disavow your Christian faith and start worshiping Mohammed, you would be right to refuse. Now that said, there are certain criteria to consider. First, exhaust all democratic and constitutional means. That is, before you go out shooting somebody, take it to court, right? File a lawsuit and take it to the highest court in the land. Second, be open and public about your civil disobedience. Be submissive to arrest and punishment, ready to take responsibility for your illegal actions. Third, do it all without violence. Don't start a shooting match with the police if they bar the door of the church. Fourth, display good knowledge of and respect for the law. Don't go in as the village idiot. You find examples of this every time you go to your favorite search engine and you type in the words, Florida Man. You're going to see something ridiculous. Instead of just watching what social media says, study what the laws actually say, because they are also available on the Internet. And be prepared to use them to your advantage. But if the laws won't permit you to be a Christian, respect them while you disobey them. Fifth, have a specific realistic end in view. Don't force the pendulum to swing completely the other way. So if the government were to outlaw Christianity, don't stage a revolt that is forcing Christianity down other people's throats because that's not how evangelism works. Maybe you've noticed that. Perhaps you've noticed so far in Acts, as you will throughout the book, that the apostles were not trying to make Judea a Christian nation. They were not trying to make the gospel official national practice. They were simply sharing the good news of Jesus one person at a time and inviting the Holy Spirit to do his saving work in their lives. This is why we pray for governments The church is not in the business of overthrowing the government, but of infiltrating it, flooding it with people who love and serve Jesus. And that's why it's good to have Christians run for political office. Too often, Christians who run for political office are seen as extremist freaks, and that's largely because we have an extremist media on the other side. In the vast majority of cases, they are simply disciples of Jesus who are trying to put their faith to work in their vocation. Civil disobedience is a form of protest and persuasion, not of coercion. Civil disobedience is not something we should do by ourselves. We are the church, whether gathered in a specific place for worship or out in the world serving and influencing. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Christianity is a team sport. When you're engaging in civil disobedience, do so as the church, as the body of Christ, and seek wise counsel from others in the church before you go making up placards or protesting in the streets. Rely on the Holy Spirit to give power to your witness. Even when you're being disobedient to an unjust law, you're being the face of Jesus in the world, so act like one of his followers and trust the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you power in your efforts at sharing his gospel. And one, one more thing. If the need arises for you to engage in civil disobedience, don't do it assuming it all depends on you, because it doesn't. No matter what the government may do, no matter what the mainstream media may do, the church will survive and thrive. It may take on a different form than we've been used to, but Jesus will preserve his church. He has promised that he will, but it may come at a cost. I'm reminded of a quotation from the great theologian and writer, Tertullian. You're thinking, I don't think I've ever heard of him. Well, that's because he lived in the late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He witnessed the early church through some of its most challenging years, and he said this, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. The seed is the blood of Christians. It was said that the 20th century was the century of the Christian martyr. But there are many named and nameless saints who throughout the past 2,000 years have given their lives so that the church of Jesus would prosper. We have the privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus today because there were people who shared it long before us. People died, sometimes heinous deaths, for the sake of their faith in Jesus. Meanwhile, there are some people who claim to love Jesus who find it rather inconvenient even to show up for worship on Sunday. People suffered unspeakably because they loved the Lord, while others in our time can't stand up for divine justice. The apostles saw great growth in the early church because they were willing to stand up to the authorities. But each of them died eventually for their faith. Doesn't exactly sound like a pep talk for a Super Bowl halftime, does it? But it is all true. The seed is the blood of Christians. So go into the world and be the church faithful. Don't let that blood have been spilled in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the apostles and those great men and women of faith who have followed them. Because they were not afraid to stand up for the saving good news of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Fill us anew with your Holy Spirit that we will be fully equipped and ready to do whatever it takes to share the gospel with those who are far from you. Give us grace to have resolve whether we ever need to engage in civil disobedience or not. But whatever befalls us, we pray for those in leadership over us and pray that our submission will never have to mean disobedience but if it should, make us ready to sacrifice so that another generation will come to know and love and serve Jesus. We ask this in his powerful name. Amen. If this message challenged you, scared you, infuriated you a little, or if it encouraged and inspired you, hit me up in the connection card, at slash connect, so that we can have a conversation about it. Uh, or if you've never said yes to faith in Jesus and would like to do so, to join the cause that will never be lost, likewise be in touch so that uh, I can walk you through the steps of giving your life to the cause of changing lives for Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, and if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.